0: the man the myth the legend let's talk to randy newberg there exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away and we won't stand for it those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul in this show we share our love of hunting fishing and conservation here Welcome to episode number 33 of the Western Huntsman Podcast. Glad you have joined us. This is uh, Jim Huntsman coming at you from the beautiful wild country of North Idaho right here in the Broken Time studio in Hayden, Idaho. Um, guys, this is going to be a really good episode. Uh, I've got uh, just a, a spectacular human being on uh, as, as my guest, and I'm going to get into that. But b- before I do that, I want to talk about an announcement that we have, and I mentioned it. If you tuned into the uh, last installment of the School of September series, uh, I'm going to give you a little bit more detail. We've got some stuff uh, going on, some giveaways, uh, some some contests for youth hunters and, uh, uh, basically there's, uh, well, there's two parts to this. First of all, because I want to announce my buddy Nate Davenport won some gear. And if you don't remember, Nate is who I had on this show about a month ago. Um, my favorite tattoo artist, he designed our logo, all this stuff. Nate was on the show. I want to say it was episode number 30. And uh, back in July, and so uh, Nate has, has want, is wanting to kind of, instead of taking the gear that he won, uh, and, and I'm not going to get into too many details about this because it's real specific to North Idaho, and um, you're going to want to be, well, I'll tell you how to get involved. So Nate Davenport, he wants to take that gear and give it away to a youth hunter and include a youth hunt for the winner turkey season uh, spring turkey 2021 in which he will take a youth hunter out uh, and uh, I might tag along and film it it's going to be kind of cool so that one is how you're going to want to find out more information about that there's some turkey hunting gear involved for the giveaway and and then obviously the hunt Uh, but in order to get involved with that you're going to want to be on a facebook group that is called North Idaho Archery Hunters. And don't get it confused because there's 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 a page, North Idaho ha- Archery Hunters, but you want to join the group, the one that's going to ask you a question in order to be uh, admitted into the group. And so for this one, I, I would recommend that you are in North Idaho as, as a resident uh, or, you know, eastern Washington, western Montana, but mainly like if you're in Lewiston, Moscow, Coeur d'Alene, uh, Sandpoint, Bonners Ferry, that that whole kind of panhandle of, of Idaho, uh, those are the people that probably want to be in that group. If you're an archery hunter, and uh, jump on there and join if you're not already, if you if you hunt in those areas. So that's where it's it's going to be announced by Nate uh, what that contest is going to be, and it's really cool and it's for youths. So. Just, uh, you know, keep your eyes out for that one um, because I don't want to give away too much information because this is this is mainly uh, coming from Nate Davenport who is just a great guy and he's super passionate about getting youths involved as we are here at the Western Huntsman. And so the, the other thing that I'm going to announce is um, essentially another contest for youths. And this could be for any youths. Anywhere uh, that that hunt that want to hunt the West, right? So there's going to be some parameters. The youth hunters, if you're listening to this and you're a youth hunter, I uh, pay attention. Ages are going to be from if you are 10 years old to 17 years old. Okay, that's our youth hunt uh, age range for this one. 10 to 17 years old. You have passed hunter safety or you are currently in hunter safety and maybe you're going out for the first time this year i'd really like it to be kind of a first time hunter or or you've only hunted a couple of times and again i don't care what uh, what region of the country you live in uh you can be anywhere from florida to washington to california to new york city i don't i don't care uh if, if you're a youth hunter and you're passionate about getting involved in hunting this is for you okay this is where it gets a little bit uh tricky <laughs> i want you to write an essay I know that sounds miserable right but but bear with me here write an essay as a youth hunter you're a new hunter what kind of hunter do you want to be and what kind of example do you want to set for hunters that are in the generations behind you because right now you're the young generation but I'm telling you in a blink of an eye you're going to have a next up and coming generation right behind you so it's time to de- develop yourself As a hunter and a leader right now, this is the time because, you know, if you're out in public, uh, COVID-19, I know has put a real damper on that lately. But, you know, you see folks walking around with toddlers and babies and they're in their strollers and changing diapers and all that kind of stuff. Those are going to be the folks looking at you in 10 to 20 years. So think about that. 10 to 20 years from now, how is hunting going to look? What kind of impact are you going to have on it? What kind of legacy are you going to leave for the hunters that are coming behind you, whether it's the the next generation or three generations from now? So that's the essence of the essay. What kind of hunter do you want to be? And what kind of example do you want to set for generations behind you? Get creative. Use your imagination. Talk to us about what hunting means to you as a new hunter Feel free to use facts and resources uh, or not. You don't have to use that. Uh, just get creative and write an essay. There is no uh, length requirement on this essay. Uh, th- I care more about the message that you're trying to l- convey than about the length or, or, or like grammar. So, you know, th- this is not <laughs> if, you- if you've ever read anything I've written. Trust me. Don't worry about the grammar. All right. Okay, so there's going to be two two prizes for this. The first prize, and and the only reason I have a first place and second place because I I don't I don't have like a uh, a way of of separating the two in terms of which one's better, which one's worse. It's just the first place is is more of an ongoing membership. It's going to give you a 12 month access to the Elk Collective, and it's so this is a full scholarship to a one year access membership to the elk collective which has all sorts of hunting elk information in there that will get you pointed in the right direction right now at the beginning of your hunting career okay that's the first place second place is going to be a scholarship for one free elk calling lesson with michael batiste of the elk calling academy so if you listen to uh, last week's or, or, or the, I guess I guess this first month's installment of the School of September, that was that was Michael Batiste. That's who that's going to be with. And it's and, and it doesn't matter where you're at because the lesson is done online and you guys connect through through Zoom. You'll be able to see each other and you're going to want to have a read and a bugle tube. Uh, and or or external calls, whatever you want to use there, and Michael is going to walk you through how to use that so you get started. That's a one-hour free lesson. So I, 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 the the idea was I was initially just going to pay these as a scholarship. I was just the the Western Huntsman was going to pick up the tab. But what you'll find with the hunting community and the hunting industry is it's packed full of world class people. They're just great people, okay? The folks over at the Elk Collective are not gonna charge me for this. They're donating this to the to the youth hunter. Michael Batisse over at the Elk Column Academy, he's not gonna send me an invoice for this. He's he's donating an hour of his time for this lesson. This is a big deal. Because these are these are companies and this is how they make their money, but they're they're willing to do that because you as the youth hunter are super important to us. You are uh, what we are building in terms of our future, and, and we are counting on you to be sportsmen, to be ethical, to be good leaders and set really good examples for hunters that are coming up behind you. And we need you. We're, we're depending on you. And, and the Elk Collective and the Elk Calling Academy both recognize that. And so you're super important in our minds, and this is going to be a very important thing. So, okay, just so we're clear, an essay about what kind of hunter you want to be and what kind of example you want to set for the generations behind you. Think about that and, and write me an essay. Again, I don't care how long it is, but once that essay is complete, send it on over to Jim... At the Western That'll be in the show notes. Jim at the Western The winners are going to have one scholarship to the Elk Collective, a uh, one year membership, and second place is going to go to a one free Elk Calling uh, seminar, or I'm sorry, not seminar, um, uh, a lesson, a one on one lesson. This is a one on one lesson. It's really cool to the Elk Calling Academy. Submissions are due by September 1st, 2020. That gives you about three weeks. Um, and uh, again, yeah, don't worry about length. Don't worry about grammar. It's the message. I want you to write, inspire me. Inspire me with what kind of hunter you plan on being and how you're going to teach others to be a great hunter. And a great hunter is ethical. A great hunter is a sportsman. A great hunter is does everything legally. A great hunter knows how to put an animal down without the animal suffering. A great hunter takes responsible shooting uh, very serious. And and, and shot placement is is of highest priority in the field. A great hunter harvests the meat. They use the meat. They make sure the meat does not go to waste. A great hunter teaches others to be great and respectful hunters. Great hunters are respectful to other hunters. These are the things I want you to talk about. The, the, that's what I want. I, I want you to express what you see a great hunter as, and what kind of example you're going to set. Okay. I hope that's clear enough. If you have any questions on that, don't hesitate to, to shoot me an email, uh, Jim at thewesternhuntsman.com. Say hey, I need clarification on this, or I need clarification on that. No worries. Just send me an email. I'll, I'll talk about it. This. Uh, or rather, I, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm really looking forward to seeing your submissions, uh, the creativity, the younger hunters, the youth hunters out there. Uh, I, I really want to see some passion, and, and I'm really excited to see that in your essays. I know writing essays is like the last thing you guys want to be doing because school's out, it's summer still, and all that kind of stuff. I get it. I, I totally get it. I hated writing essays when I was your age, but it's important because it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get it i i guess i get you thinking in your mind the kind of hunter that you want to be and the kind of leader you want to be within the hunting community it's a it's an important place to be so uh i hope you guys really uh take it serious and and uh are interested in this and and look forward to because these prizes are super super cool guys the elk collective is a wealth of information you'll be miles ahead of the pack in your age group if you go through the elk collective you'll be miles ahead of the pack as an elk caller if you sit down with Michael Batiste for an hour. I might have some other prizes I, I, I'll add into this. I'm not totally sure. Uh, I'm just working it out. But I wanted to try to get this out prior to season. Uh, And and uh, obviously, I'm a little behind the power curve on that. So, so here we go with that. Guys, send me those submissions. They're due September 1st. Youth hunters, ages 10 to 17. Has passed or is in hunter safety currently? Let me know. And most of all, good luck to you. Good luck to you on this. This uh, you can make this. This is this can be like a journey. Try it out.
1: And may the odds be ever in your favor.
0: <laughs> okay, I had to I had to do that part. All right, guys, my guest today, Randy Newberg. You know Randy Newberg. Who doesn't know who Randy Newberg is? Fresh Tracks TV and and his uh, he's his crazy big uh, YouTube series, and, and you can get it on Amazon Prime. Uh, it used to be on on cable TV. And he's got he's got a podcast called uh, Randy Newberg Unfiltered, and it's actually one of my favorite podcasts. I love it. the The loophole sponsored podcast. Uh, it's a great show. He also uh, joins Corey Jacobson on another podcast called Elk Talk Podcast and uh super resourceful on that one it's uh, got a lot of good inf- good information uh, Randy is just a wealth of information and Randy's been a lifelong advocate for public lands and our federally managed you, you know like your US Forest Service your BLM's all the, he he's been an advocate for these public lands and access and he's been on the board of Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation he's just he's he's just one of those guys that puts his money where his mouth is for public lands hunting rights Advocacy, conservation, all these things, Randy is the guy that has been there and done that. And sometimes I worry that we don't have somebody coming up behind Randy that has the kind of influence that Randy has and the passion that Randy has for these issues that we're going to talk about. But this episode is all about public lands and this notion of transferring federal public lands to statehood, or I'm sorry, state ownership, Uh, the concept there is the, the essentially the the politicians that are for the the transfer of, of federal public lands to state ownership are packaging it as if they're on some noble crusade and saving you from the federal bureaucracies of, of federal federally managed land, public land. And, and what the what the reality is behind that is it, it, it if were that to happen, it goes from you and I owning the public land, As citizens of the United States, uh, all all these things that that we talk about all the time – that, it goes to state ownership And st- the state can determine whether or not Because you and I no longer own it The state owns it The state land boards uh, And and these uh, then it actually goes to true bureaucrats that, that own the land And they can determine Hey, you know what? The Wilkes Brothers wants to own all this land now too So they're going to give us a bunch of money That's what this conversation is about And it's a really important one I hope you guys really like it and pay attention And uh, let's uh, let's get together on this stuff and, and fight together Here we go with Randy New all right, guys. I am on the phone with one of my favorite uh, figures in the in the hunting community. And I'm. Uh, I want to give him a warm welcome to the Western Huntsman podcast, Randy Newberg. How you doing, my friend?
1: Jim, I'd probably have to be you to be any better.
0: <laughs> I, I don't know about that, but uh, I'm. I'm really excited about this conversation. We're going to talk all sorts of conservation issues and state land versus public land versus federal land, and and all these different <laughs> topics that it it can get really muddy really fast. And uh, you are one of those guys that has a very unique and an easy way to articulate it, so people understand it. And and I think that uh, we're going to get a lot out
1: of this. So I appreciate you joining me. Uh, I appreciate you having me. Anytime we can talk about these issues, I'll get up real early. Not <laughs> not as early as I usually get up for hunting, but I'll get yeah, up early to talk about this stuff.
0: It's a it's a close second, right? Yeah. So uh, I I want to I need to get one question right out the door right yep. off the bat. It's super important. In your email signature, you have a fax number. Now, who
1: in the world is still faxing you? Uh, you'd be surprised. I, in my other <laughs> life, I'm a CPA. Uh-huh. Uh, yep. And so we have to get public land film permits all the time. For any time we film on public land, we got to get a a film permit. And a lot of times, yeah, a lot of times they want that via fax. They don't want to scan an email. They, they want it faxed. Uh, crazy as it also sounds, a lot of the investment companies that I deal with in my CPA life, they Mm -hmm. need a faxed signature. Their regulations or internal rules, whatever it is, still says, got to fax it to you. Okay. Oh, super interesting. interesting. (laughs) <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even know people still use those things. Me either. I, I think I, I mostly keep it there to let people know how old I am.
0: <laughs> no, that's uh, that's that's fantastic, Mike. Um, it's funny because so I have I have a few different podcasts on my on my phone that I listen to periodically, and it's my my wife kind of has an accounting background, and and so she she calls she refers to you as the accountant. Oh. And, and so, oh, are you listening to the accountant guy? Yeah, you bet <laughs> I am. Do you want to join in?
1: <laughs> uh, well, that's nice. She just calls me the accountant. A lot of people call me things much worse than that. So. There's a lot
0: worse things. She she calls she calls me a lot worse things than, than accountant sometimes. So, uh, so you got it good. Well. All right, uh, you know, Randy, for for anybody that it may have been uh, living in a cave. On the moon, that may not know who you are. Can you give us just kind of a brief overview of
1: of Randy Newberg and your platforms and and what you do? Sure. Uh, I uh, you know, we already broke the ice by saying that in my real life I'm a tax accountant. Uh, I tell people that my my real life job I disinherit the federal treasury. And when when you tell people your job is disinheriting the federal treasury, you could have just insulted their grandmother and they think you're a good guy. Uh, But outside of that, I started a bunch of outdoor platforms in 2008. Um, And it all came about as I'd spent the prior 15 years being involved as a volunteer in conservation, public land issues, stuff like that. And I realized if I wanted to maybe be a bit more effective in what I'm doing, that I probably need to build some platform. So from that came a TV show that was on, uh, cable TV for nine years. And mm-hmm. now we've migrated all of that to YouTube, to Amazon Prime. Uh, I have my Randy Newberg Hunt Talk Radio slash Unfiltered podcast. Uh, I do a podcast with Corey Jacobson, uh, called Elk Talk. I think Corey's been on your podcast before. Uh, oh yeah the why of my business i'm sitting here in my office looking at the every whiteboard here it says to promote self-guided public land hunting and create advocates for that cause it's that simple that's what i get up to do every morning all right how do i promote public land hunting and how do i create advocates for the cause of public lands and hunting so that's so, that's it so the challenge. idea
0: the idea I think is is super similar to the mission of of the Western huntsman platform because yep. uh, our mission is is uh, I, I'm, I'm looking at my mission statement right in front of me and I could tell man I'm getting I'm getting older. it's getting harder to read that thing from sitting here at this <laughs> desk but to inspire a genuine passion for hunting, fishing and conservation, To develop a strong coalition of American outdoorsmen willing to fight and protect our hunting rights, public lands access, and our wildlife. And that's essentially where the Western Huntsman was born out of. And I I think these are important missions because there's so many people that are so passionate about hunting and fishing and Mm. conservation and, and all these things that we enjoy. And I think that the conservation aspect of it sometimes gets overlooked because we're so busy hunting and fishing. And, and so I think it's important that we have these conversations and have these platforms. And you're just, uh, you've got this, uh, the, the, your platforms have such a huge impact and, and I appreciate what you do. And so that's, that's why I'm excited about this conversation. I can go on all day about that kind of well, stuff.
1: I appreciate that, that you think that they are having an impact, Jim. That's, uh, that was our goal when we started, uh, and along the way, you know, when you're trying to create advocates, you have to stick your nose into the political arena. Uh, because and, and the reason being is over our lifetimes, our issues have been taken away from public hearings and just game and fish departments or whatever and brought into the political arena of state legislatures, Congress, places like that. And mm-hmm. I just decided, you know what? If I'm going to play in the game, I better be willing to jump into that morass, <laughs> that quagmire. <laughs> uh and when you do that, uh you you create some friction at times. Let's just put it that way. So, yeah, I've 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 said this before on the podcast. I've I
0: underestimated how much uh, friction can be created just by having a podcast and I I don't have TV shows <laughs> and and YouTube channels and stuff like that, like you do. So, um, I, I can only imagine what it's like on, on your level. The, and you talk about that. You know what's interesting? It just, it just, this pops into my mind. Uh, in Montana, you're over there in Montana yep. and you, you sometimes have to get into the fray of politics with, with what we're talking about with these issues. Yep. Uh, but you, you guys have like a different kind of Democrat in, in Montana. That you're dealing it's, with. And uh, I, I feel like they're they're more of the old fashioned Democrat that they seem to be a little more reasonable than some of the the Democrats today.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, if you want to look at that political spectrum, if you took some of our in Montana, some of our statewide Democrats who get elected, if you put them in California or Massachusetts or New York, they'd be considered far right wing crazies. Yeah, uh. they'd be crucified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, can you imagine the governor of California running political ads for re-election with him and his son out there posing with a dead deer and a rifle? <laughs> <laughs> In Montana, that's like street the street cred, man. Oh, man.
0: Yeah, that would be. Uh, uh, call, you think that you think the riots are bad now?
1: That's exactly uh, what would happen over uh, there, but. It- it's an it's an interesting situation and an interesting place to live. Uh kind of like Idaho. Uh even those who would be lumped in as, you know, over to the left are still pretty moderate. You just you aren't you, you aren't going to make it in a place like Montana, Idaho or Wyoming pitching, you know, some of the really far left ideas. So I suppose
0: the same could be said for like a Republican in California. Yeah. You know? And so, and, and sometimes as you know, when we're talking and to your point, what what we're talking about with this, these issues, what's, what's an interesting kind of, I don't know, perspective or aspect of this is that my show is not, not necessarily a show of politics, but, but we get into the weeds of politics with, with these kind of issues. and, the 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 extremes that politics have has become are why I don't like to talk about politics most of the time because there's such this this huge divide yeah. between what used to be republican and democrat and now it's now it's like us versus them them versus us mentality and it gets ugly yeah. it just and gets ugly
1: anymore that's why I tell people I don't belong to any party I belong to the party of hunting fishing and public lands and yeah. I'll be an equal opportunity supporter and I'll be an equal opportunity abuser. And, uh, mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I can't buy it. And part of this is 30 years of being involved in politics and seeing how it operates behind the scenes more than I probably need to. Uh, I, I'm under no false premise that either side has public lands or hunting as a really high priority. So knowing yeah. that it's like, you know what? If I want to give priority to those issues, I just got to jump in and not really care what party someone wants to affiliate with. I'm about where are you on these issues and let the other <laughs> stuff be what it is. So. Yeah, makes it a whole lot yeah. easier. Yeah, I, I, uh,
0: <laughs> it's funny. I, I, I used to be a very staunch, one-sided kind of guy, and it's, it's not that my beliefs have changed. It's that I feel like the, the parties have changed, and I. There are times when I just, I feel like I don't belong anywhere because you get, you get some, some people on the folks on the right that, that want everything to look like Texas. You know, they, they don't have public land. That like we do in in some of these other western states and, yeah. and and they believe in 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 so-called state transfers and and all these other uh, other things that would have a huge impact on on the hunting community and, and then you go to the other side and they want to take away your guns and 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 do all these 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 crazy things with our tax dollars and and they both do crazy things with our tax dollars. Anyways, we're getting way uh way off topic
1: here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's uh, laying that out as some background I think it's helpful. I told you that uh I grew up and you know, I I kind of went to college during the Reagan years. Reagan was the first president I ever got to vote for. And so I, I always viewed myself as a Ronald Reagan follower. Uh, and you know, when you're young, you kind of want to be part of the winning team. And, and I don't regret any of my, my thoughts or, or positions at the time. But, uh, when I moved to Montana after I'd been here about 10 years, I started feeling more comfortable, engaging in politics. And I was trying to be involved in Republican politics here in the Gallatin Valley. Uh, I used to go to the meetings. And eventually they told me, you know what? All you want to talk about is hunting, fishing, conservation, clean air, clean water, public lands, public access. We don't need you here. Don't come anymore. I'm like, okay. (laughs) And so... That was one of those events in my life where at the time I kind of threw my sucker in the dirt and I was mad, like, well, who are they to say these aren't important issues to the Republican party? And well, who they were, were the party leaders. So they get to say what they want. And so I just moved on and did my thing. And now in retrospect, it was probably one of the better things that could have happened. Otherwise I would have not become this, uh, unpredictable, uh, <laughs> person yeah. who just can focus on the issues, not the party. The party means absolutely nothing to me. So it's so liberating once you walk away from that at the time, you know, like I said, I, I was kind of bummed, but now it's like, whew, thank goodness that happened.
0: <laughs> it does. It kind of, it kind of frees you from that, that corral of that party. I, I, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying for sure. I just it's it's hard and and I told you before we started recording, I, I don't want to get tar and feathered. But uh huh? I, I was the same way uh twelve years ago when my wife and I uh I took a job down in Utah in and, and uh the, Utah is its 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 own uh oh, series of podcast <laughs> episodes <laughs> in, in, in terms of uh conservation and and their I, I you had a term for it the Utah delegation, and uh it's funny my brother lives down there, and I'll say oh how, how's it going down there with the Utah delegation? He gets kind of upset with me because he's real defensive about it, but anyways, back in those days when I took the job we moved we we moved down to Utah, and I actually volunteered for the Mike Lee campaign, help making phone calls to delegates and all this stuff. And now I'm just like, you know, I, I, I probably shouldn't even say this on my podcast. And I, I, I would never do that today for, for either party at this point. But uh, I also am, am really regretful because I just didn't have an understanding of specifically Utah politics and, and their negative impact on public land and and their uh, there, the, these, these Mike Lees out there that just, I, I guess what, how, how do we even, how do we even investigate that in a sense of like, where does that thought process come from? Let's get yeah. rid of public lands and, and turn it all essentially. It's, it's all going to go. They, they put it under the guise of it, states are going to manage them a lot more efficiently. But really yeah. what it boils down to is they're going to be sold and we are not going right. to have access to them.
1: Yeah, when you think about it, it's something that has been in our country forever. When you go back to the history, the Northwest Ordinance started the whole concept of, of state trust lands. And when Ohio became a state, they said one square mile out of every township, in other words, one, one section out of every 36 sections in a township, shall become public land or or shall become state trust lands held in trust by the state for the management and funding of their school systems. And I Mm -hmm. think Ohio university, if you're a Bobcat, I think that's what they are, uh, was the first university built uh, based on this new idea. Uh, So then after that, every state that became admitted to the union got these, these lands like in Montana, and Idaho, we got, I believe Idaho was included in this one, section 16 and 36 out of every township got transferred to the state, uh, to help fund their school systems. Well, along with that, kind of going parallel to it, we had the railroad companies, the timber companies, the mining companies who were granted federal lands if they would come and develop these lands. Mm-hmm. Well, do you guys have Plum Plum Creek Timberlands, or did you that now have been sold? You know, uh, I I'm not super familiar
0: with that. I don't that that one does not stand out in my mind. But okay. I, I I just in may Montana, have Montana.
1: We we have Plum Creek Timber, whose predecessor was a railroad company. So the railroad company who got all these lands for putting the railroads through Montana later on set up a timber company. So they spun off all those lands and put them in a different company that was Plum Creek. Um, And there's a bunch of these other uh, companies. If you look at the checkerboard pattern, if you've ever driven I-80, Interstate 80 across Southern Wyoming, Mm -hmm. it looks like a checkerboard. And how that happened was the railroads got every other section. So we've had this history of giving private enterprises Land. It's it it's happened throughout our country forever. Now, then you have the homesteads, and it's okay. You come and you homestead this 160 acres, and if you meet certain things, and da da da, you get to buy it for some pittance of a price, or it's almost free in some instances. So we had another program where we were giving away our land to private enterprises or private people. Uh so that worked out so good for some people and some groups that uh, they wanted the entire country turned over to private enterprises. So after, uh, Jefferson bought the, you know, Louisiana purchase, if you, whatever, however you mm-hmm. wanted to find that, you add that, you add, Uh, All the territories we got from the the Mexican War, uh, the Gadsden Purchase, the settlement or the negotiation with the British for Oregon and Washington, Seward's Folly, known as Alaska. By the time that's all done, we have two billion acres of public land. And then the giveaway programs start. And... By the time they're done giving it away, we're left with 600 million acres. So the federal government has already given away 1.4 billion acres of public land to private enterprises and to mm-hmm. states. So what we deal with today is the remaining 600 million, 640 million acres now uh, of what was considered too arid, too inhospitable, unproductive, not fit for commerce or anything else. So <laughs> all the crappy, what, what was deemed to be the crappy undesirable lands are what we are left with today. And yeah. so this whole notion of giving land to private enterprises has been around for a long time, but sure along come Roosevelt and some other people when he becomes president, he establishes the U S forest service. Later on, Department of Interior kind of formalizes, hey, we're going to set up a land management group called the Bureau of Land Management. So starting from about 1900 to 1940-ish, we start putting some real formality to this. But in the interim, as states were admitted to the Union, some of the more arid states in the Southwest Got even more than two sections out of every township. Some of them got three or four sections out of every township. Uh, and so uh, this the the trend then started in Nevada, where Nevada got uh, almost three million acres at statehood. But if you've ever been to Nevada, it has <laughs> a lot of arid, inhospitable land hmm. So their state legislature went to Congress, went with their 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 state congressional delegation and said, hey, we'll give you back these three million acres if you let us handpick the two point one million that we'd really like to have, because we can't raise any money for our school systems on a bunch of dry dirt out here. So they negotiate that. Nevada ends up with two point one million acres of state trust lands, which are some of the most irrigated, at least well-watered relative to a Great Basin state like Nevada. Uh, they end up with that. And in the 1920s, uh, mostly, Nevada sells 90-some percent of those state lands. And the, the 2.1 million acres. Yeah. Right yeah. now, out of 2.1 million, Nevada owns just over a 100,000 of of what remains. So they sold like a 1,960,000 acres for a pittance, absolute pittance. I mean, it was, if you go and read the history of it, and because I went to college in Reno, that's where I got my accounting accounting degree. One of the things when you go to college there, you have to take a year of Nevada history. And little did I know at the time how useful this would become in my later life. I was kind of, complaining that I had to take this elective. It wasn't even an elective. They called it an elective, but it was a requirement. Well, we get into this part of the Nevada history. Uh, and when they sold it, they didn't even put the money in the in the educational trust. <laughs> they just put it in the general fund. And so Nevada is kind of this example of how when state politicians get a hold of these lands, uh, they've not necessarily been the greatest stewards uh, of how it can be. Uh, but in Nevada, it was just a carrying forward of this belief, this anti-public land that no land should be held by the government, that land should all be privately held. That's kind of what Nevada became an example of. And so now Nevada has less than 1% of its state trust lands remaining. It, it's crazy. So how does that play into this whole question that you asked of how did we get there? How where does that mindset come from? Uh it's a mindset that's been here forever. When I was going to college in Reno in the 80s, that was the the core of the sagebrush rebellion. And so they just flat out said at that time, sell the public land. That that was their mantra mantra, sell the public land, sell the public land. Uh, Well, on a national level, they got their teeth handed to them, and so they kind of retreated and said, boy, that wasn't a good marketing strategy. Uh, but if you follow the history of this, it's always been the same groups, the same people, the same institutions who are always pushing this concept, and they just repackage it as something slightly different every time. When they come out with their new marketing plan, they call it something else. Well, the most recent one we've been dealing with the last 10 years is called state transfer transfer these public lands to the states, because these groups that want to get their hands on them, they know how good the states are at selling these public lands. And they know every study that's ever been commissioned says that there's not a state in the West that could afford to keep these lands. Because the states don't have a U.S. Treasury with a printing machine that just prints money nonstop. States have to balance budgets. So, every one of these studies that have been commissioned, Utah being the most recent and the, the most in depth, I think it's 380 some pages. There are two universities, Utah University, Utah State. Actually, I think BYU is also part of that. All their economists came together and said, even at current high oil and gas rates, and, and Utah is quite, uh, there, there's quite a bit of oil and gas in some spots, mostly natural gas. Even at those high rates, Utah would have to sell the majority of these lands to afford to have them, to own them. Well, that's exactly what the goal is. So that's why so many groups behind the scenes are pushing this idea of transfer the state or the public land, our federal public lands to state land boards. So that's as abbreviated of a history lesson as I can give to it. Are you there, Jim?
0: I'm here. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Okay. Um, I must have hit that mute button.
1: <laughs> <laughs> did I just spend the last five minutes of the carrying on and Jim's gone? I, I just I just said the most
0: profound thing I've ever said on a podcast and I was muted.
1: Oh, no, I'm what did you say? <laughs> no,
0: okay. Nothing really. I was I was asking I was trying to ask um, when we're talking about this financial aspect of it, and we're talking about this, uh, you know, the states and, and how they can generate this revenue, uh, be, mm-hmm. because like, like in the Idaho, I, I believe it's in the Idaho Constitution. I mean, it, it literally says yep. that the public land or the state-owned land, I'm sorry, is is mm-hmm. there to fund public schools. And exactly. and so, yeah, and I don't know the exact wording, but but I've I've read it. And so, when we're looking at that. And, and we're talking about the funding. Is, is it fair to say that when a state gets a hold of, of, of land and they could sell it,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's a lot more money than what they'll get out of like a a, a PILT fund payment?
1: Yeah. Is, it, considering, is that fair? Yeah, because Congress, so we go to PILT and SRS, right? Payment in lieu of taxes, SRS mm-hmm. is secure rural schools. Those are the way the federal government is supposed to pay their property taxes on these federal lands. Yeah. and the same the same politicians in congress who are complaining about these federal lands who are complaining and saying we should sell them dispose of them or transfer them to the states are the same people who are cutting the pilt payments to these these rural counties the Ugh. same people who are cutting the SRS payments to these rural counties so it's it becomes really a self yeah So they're kind of controlling the levers of power to make the situation worse out in the rural landscape. And then they use their actions as the reason for why we should get rid of the federal land. So to to your question, would selling those lands, if you're a state, should I sell these lands or should I wait for uh, or will that be more than what the PILT payment or the SRS payment is? No question. The premium lands, the river frontage, the the great hunting lands are going to bring you way more money at auction than what your pilt is. is. I was trying
0: to come up with a way to compare those, and and there's really not not any way to compare it. I can't find the right information. But, I mean, and when we're talking about the pilt, This is not chump change. I mean, the state of Idaho in 2019, let's see, $32,271,810. Let's look at Montana, 33, almost 34 million.
1: Yeah. And if Congress Uh, would have kept up with inflation when they first came up with PILT and SRS, those Uh payments would be double or triple what they are right now.
0: Well, that's, that's interesting because if you look at FY 2018 versus FY 2019, it did go down last year. Yeah. Uh, again, going back to Idaho 2018, 36 million, uh, and 2019, just over 32 million.
1: So I, I tell people I, I, I was a big fan of state transfer when it first came out. I mean, I was like, yeah, damn feds. Mm-hmm. So this is like mm-hmm. 15, 20 years ago. Well, we all like to say the damn feds, right? Everything's the feds problem. Well, guess yeah. who the fed is? The fed is who we elect and send to Congress. And what you just pointed out right there with the pilt being dropped by over 10%, this is the payment the federal government is supposed to send your local counties, your school districts for funding for the, the equivalent of property taxes. Your Congress that we have elected today decided your county, your state, your school district should do the same amount of work on 10% less revenue. I mean, imagine if you and I got to decide what our property tax bill was. <sighs> I'd, love to, I'd love to be able to decide that. <laughs> yeah. So when yeah. we complain yeah. about the feds, the Fed is Congress. The mm-hmm. Fed isn't the, the local BLM range conservation officer. The Fed is not your local forester up there on the salmon forest. The yeah. Fed is Congress. And until Congress starts being held accountable for this BS, they, they've they got – right now, they love the the d- dynamic that we have because we all get mad at the Fed, this nebulous kind of – Whoever it is, and we go down to a public meeting or we go down to the Forest Service office and we slam our fist on the counter and complain about what they're doing. Well, the person who sets policy, sets budget, makes the final decisions, is in Washington, D.C., is sitting in Congress, and do they ever hear the complaints? Do they hear from our frustrations? No. no, they've got it made because they know whatever they do, the, the complaints are going over to the complaint department, i.e., the local BLM office or the local Forest Service office. So, what do they yeah. do? They're like, well, let's lower the PILT payments even further. Let's make these county commissioners mad as hell. Because if we keep, if we just keep cinching down the screws on these PILT payments, pretty soon all those county commissioners. They'll be on board with our idea to sell these federal lands or to give them to the states. So it becomes a self-fulfilling activity. The way they do uh, it,
0: the the mindset is just mind-boggling. See, this is why, this is why uh, you know I I'm a big history buff, and mm-hmm. uh, I I spe- specifically I love I love studying the Civil War. Right, okay. and uh, there's this movie that came out in the mid '90s called Gettysburg. And, yeah. and, and there's a scene in it where this soldier's really upset about, uh, the papers he signed for his enlistment kind of thing. And, and he's talking to Colonel Chamberlain of the, the, the 20th Maine, the, the regimental commander. And, and, and what he's doing is he's complaining about these Northern generals. And, and I love the analogy he uses because it's, that is what gets in my head when I think of politicians anymore. And that's why I'm so, I, that's, uh, that's why I'm so soured by it. But he says these, these officers, these gentlemen that aren't fit to pour pee out of a boot with instructions written under the heel. And that, that analogy is stuck out in my mind. And so when I, when I think of a politician, <laughs> that's what I go to. They couldn't, they couldn't mm-hmm. pour pee out of a boot with instructions written under the heel. And, it, it, they they get so uh the, this this ideology that that comes up i had i had a uh, a senate candidate on my show a, a couple of months ago and I felt mm-hmm. like i was slightly unprepared for the conversation of of state transfer uh sure. the, the the idea of straight tra- or state transfer if i could spit that out. Uh, and that's why I really wanted to get you on because I don't ever want to be unprepared again for this kind of conversation. And, and it, it's an election year and he, he, he articulated and made such this, uh, this, it was, it was a solid argument for state ownership of public lands, right? Because they, they package it in this way that it's like, okay, well, states, they, they are more efficient. They can they can manage an acre per acre cost would be less than how the federal uh, government can manage it for they're local they're this they're that and he and he has all this stuff he's throwing out there uh, for and the argument was let's take these federal lands and let the state manage them the the, the biggest problem with that and, and I'm I'm fortunate enough to live in Idaho where where state lands are are uh, largely accessible for for sportsmen
1: however yep. you guys. Got- You guys have the best state land rules of any Western state.
0: We do. We do. And, and, but I've also lived on the, on the other side of that. I've lived in Utah. And so I I've seen like the, it's like the both
1: sides of that, that pendulum, you know what I mean? For me, it, it comes down to uh, looking (laughs) when you use the term packaging, uh, that that's really the right term. It's, what kind of a bow have we wrapped around this concept? Because the concept inside the box never changes Mm -hmm. that goal. And you look at who's funding it. You look at where the money's coming from. It's the same people who want these lands in private hands. So I'll use an example in Idaho because I keep really close tabs on Idaho. One, I got a lot of friends there. A lot of our audience is there, but in the last two years have your Trespass laws change significantly in your legislature.
0: Not that I'm That's aware it. of.
1: Okay. There, there's there there's certain things that about how what notification is required and and for hunters does it have to be posted? Not posted. Oh yeah 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 <laughs> yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, you guys are only one adverse legislature away from your state land rules being the same as Colorado where you can't hunt on state lands. So imagine if you Mm -hmm. took your 2.4 million acres of state lands that you can currently hunt on in Idaho today, and you could no longer hunt on those. You would be like Colorado, Mm -hmm. Colorado state trust lines. You can't hunt on it. Yeah. The lessee controls the hunting on Colorado state land.
0: There's also states that restrict I mean just not just hunting, but I mean just right. access in general you can't walk your dog on it.
1: Right. So <laughs> we did a, in in 2016 and 17. I spent the better part of a year in my part-time spare time, whatever, putting together a I think it's 16 episodes on our YouTube channel about state transfer. We went through every state, what their rules were for public access, for recreation, what their history was. And at the time, Colorado, Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, uh, those four states had big, bold letters on their state land board websites that said, state land, state trust lands are not public lands. I mean, like, Mm -hmm flashing red so you never they did not want you to make the false assumption that these are public land and so we did screen captures of those and when we released the colorado uh episode i get a call or an email from somebody from the colorado state land board it says where did you get that information i said well it's right on your website <laughs> two days later that was taken down and, and now, if you go to the Arizona and uh, uh, New Mexico state land board websites, it no longer has the big red letters warning you that these are not public lands. See, and I think that's so, an important distinction,
0: especially for my Idaho peeps, what, what they need to understand. Like when, we, when some of these politicians talk about transferring to the state and they they use the term to manage, Right. The difference yep. being is is like let's let's just look at uh, BLM and Forest Service for for example. We as the people own that land. If it transfers to the yep. state, the state is then the actual owner of the land. They hold the title, so to speak.
1: The, and the so they can the state land board. The trustees of the state land board own that land, not the citizens mm-hmm. of the state.
0: Exactly, so. and that's that's a that's a huge distinction that that. Uh, I was trying to get across to this congressional candidate that, uh, you know, that you're missing the point here. That, uh, sure. Maybe, maybe you can make the case that the state might manage it better, but the, the, but then it is out of our hands. See, as of right now, we own the land. It's, it's a, it's our public land. In fact, that pilt money, uh, I'm just taking a wild guess, throwing this out here to a tax accountant. Uh, that pilt money comes from taxpayer dollars. Yep. and so it, it, you can in a sense say um that w- that we pay for that and and yep. so when you when you put it in the state's hands into the state land boards they now own it and yes right now today Idaho state lands may be accessible but they could, we could wake up tomorrow and somebody was grumpy about it and all of a sudden we've lost our access
1: yep. uh, that's so. uh, <laughs> that happens all the time i mean wyoming you cannot camp on state land New Mexico, I know, isn't that crazy? You cannot camp on state lands in New Mexico. So I don't know if any of your listeners have ever hunted mule deer in the Wyoming range, Region G or Region H of Wyoming. Imagine if you had to hike in and hike out every day to hunt that because you you could not uh, camp in there. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's, nuts. it's it, it, nuts. It would be impossible. Think about New Mexico. If you could not camp on those Forest Service lands out there, you would have to drive from Daddle or Reserve out to Hunt the Gila. You'd have to make that two to three hour drive each way every day. So you'd Mm have four to six hours of drive time because you couldn't camp out there. So here here's who will own federal lands if they are transferred to the state of Idaho land board. Here's who your beneficiaries are. So understand this is not this whole concept is not taking Forest Service and BLM lands and giving them to the quote unquote state of Idaho. It's giving them to the state land board, which your state land board uh, is. It's a, a trust arrangement where you have your land commissioners. It includes your governor, your secretary of state, your attorney general. Your state controller and your superintendent of public schools. So here's who the beneficiaries are. And it specifically states that these lands shall be held for the benefit of shall be held in perpetuity as a trust for the beneficiary of these beneficiary for for the benefit of these beneficiaries. Here's who they are. Your Idaho public schools. University of Idaho, the State Hospital for the Mentally Ill, Lewis and Clark State College, your state veterans home, Idaho State University, the Capitol Commission, the Idaho School for the Deaf and Blind, and the Idaho Juvenile Correction and Prison System. That's who owns the land, then. This is not owned by Idaho Game and Fish. It is not owned by the citizens of Idaho. It is those specific nine or ten beneficiaries for which these lands are held in trust
0: and they could do whatever they want but to that land. They, they and a big uh, uh I guess area of contention in in Idaho since we're on the Idaho topic is the Wilkes brothers coming yep. up here and and spending millions of dollars and closing access. Uh right. it, it's it's a huge issue here, right? And yeah. so when how easy would it be for the the land board to say we've we've got a deficit for the you know we we've got we we need to build three more high schools within the state of Idaho and I, I you know I'm in that section of the industry where I know how expensive that is that's that's right. sixty to a hundred million dollars per high school sure. and yeah. and with a growing population how easy would it be for the state land board to say let's go ahead and take the Wilkes brothers uh, up on their little offer to get rid of this land and and they're going to fence it off and for for who knows what what are they doing with all that land <laughs> i don't know
1: in montana you know? they 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 have i think over 400,000 acres in montana right now which you know mm-hmm. hey congrats to them for being as successful as they are you know they've got a lot of money but i'm not yeah. interested in changing the rules of the game to leverage it so that they can use that money to acquire our land I don't know if you guys know this yet
0: but hunting season is knocking on our door in fact some states it's already even open I'm, I'm seeing pictures on social media it's coming guys have you gotten your scree gear scree is extreme mountain gear that is designed for rugged western hunting like we talk about on this show all the time complete layering system for all terrain and all conditions gear designed to adapt to the weather rugged gear backed by a lifetime warranty the VIP sizing and exchange program is amazing if you get the wrong size in the mail or something's not right you send it back for free they they send you the mailing slip for it and take care of everything guys this is great gear I've been running Scree for a long time now and I really really like it it's a great company story Uh, the owner is real big on having high-performance technical hunting apparel at a responsible price And that's what you're going to get with Scree. You know how it goes. You can go drop a small fortune on on some of this gear out there, right? And we all love to have it. I love having this gear. But with Scree, you're going to get the high-performance gear. You're going to get everything that you would expect on a high-performance kind of company like this uh, with with the gear you're going to get. But you're not going to break the bank. You don't need to sell your kids. You don't need to take out a second mortgage. Just get you some Scree gear. And at checkout. Go ahead and use the promo code The Western Huntsman for 15% off and free shipping. That's a smoking deal. And Huntsman is spelled H-U-N-T-S-M-A-N. A is an apple. The Western Huntsman at checkout with Scree Gear. You should check out the Elk Bundle they have. It's pretty spectacular. Hope you guys check it out. I appreciate you supporting our sponsors. And our other sponsor is Phelps Game Calls, guys. The the premier call company. Everybody knows Phelps. We all love Phelps. If you're not using Phelps Game Calls, you're not doing it right. (laughs) Okay. No, I'm serious, guys. Phelps is is a company that was born out of this uh, great American success story that started something small and it turned into this big company that everybody knows now I use Phelps for for my elk calls I use Phelps for for predator calls they've got some new deer calls coming out it's gonna be great so I use the amp series for the elk you guys know September's on its way Or, or it could possibly be here by the time you're listening to this who knows but September's on its way my favorite time of year better than Christmas better than anything September man get your amp calls I really like the Maverick and the black amp those two are screaming reads and uh, that there's a, a bunch of other reads for different types of of pallets if you will or uh, the way that you use a call it might change so you got to try a little bit of everything and uh, the, the pink call is fantastic uh, but uh, personally I like that black amp that Maverick read Uh, Those two are kind of my go-tos when it comes to calling in elk, and boy, do they work. Uh, Again, check out, guys, Phelps has given us a um, a promo code to use. It is Huntsman10, H-U-N-T-S-M-A-N, 10, number 10. So you'll get 10% off at checkout. Go to phelps.com and check it out. It's going to be in the show notes. And lastly, just just as a bonus promo code for you guys that are in the market for a new set of boots, I love the Explorers from Hoffman Boots. They are badass boots. They will get you up the mountain. They will get you down the mountain for several seasons. Check them out. The promo code for Hoffman Boots is HUNTSMAN15. HUNTSMAN is all caps lock. H-U-N-T-S-M-E-N 15 go ahead and check that out it'll be in the show notes and uh, get you some new boots and and let me know what you think Thanks guys here we go let's get back into it they're, they're gonna turn it uh, they're, they're essentially kind of taking our lands up here in Idaho and Montana and Wyoming and all these areas and they're you know they're from Texas and I don't mean to pick on Texas I'm not picking on Texas <laughs> but but Texas is a perfect example of what we don't want. They, right. they in, to be a hunter in Texas, you either have to leave the state or you have to be uh, you have to have enough money to, to to buy into a lease or own own private property. All, all these things are no, you know, you've, you've got an uncle that that owns a lease or, you know, something along those lines. And I kind of know how that feels, because when I was in the military, I was stationed in North Carolina and it was a lot of the same kind of stuff. I, mm-hmm. I I didn't know. I was a kid from the west. I didn't know that you you can't just go driving up into the into the Forest Service land and go hunting. And yeah. everywhere I went was no trespassing signs, and yeah. uh, you had to have a lease. And or I I remember I looked into this this hunting club called Paradise Hunting Club <laughs> to because I wanted to hunt deer. And uh, I, I do you know what they paid? A private in the Marine Corps in in 1999 <laughs> or the year 2000, I couldn't buy into that. I couldn't. I couldn't afford that. Uh, oh, no. Luckily for me, uh, th- it was attached to a piece of public land at the Crotan National Forest. This this game club. And the Crotan mm-hmm. National Forest, when you compare it to National Forest of, of Montana or, the, or, or Idaho or Utah or, or Nevada, you, you know, all these, uh, well, not Nevada maybe, but uh, it, it's just this teeny sliver piece of land. You could, you could be in and out of it in a half an hour. Uh, I sat on the other side of the fence of this Paradise Hunt Gun Club and waited for them to chase a, a whitetail off. And I was successful. I got a little three three by three whitetail, and it was my first whitetail ever. <laughs> but that's what it took to get a deer out there. I had to get super creative yeah. like that. And this was before yeah. Onyx and uh, you know th- ways to
1: uh, these mapping systems that made that easy. I had to do it the old fashioned way. Yeah. So if if let's use your example in Idaho, and okay. let, let let's just walk this through. So the. We do an experiment. We say, you know, Idaho is a great experiment. Let's take – or a great place for an experiment. Let's take the Forest Service lands and the BLM lands and let's give them to your state land board so it can manage them for the exclusive benefit of these nine institutions that are the beneficiaries of your state trust. Mm -hmm. Well, your state legislature looks at Utah and says, you know – The way Utah balances its state budget is it keeps cutting school funding for other services of health and human services and police and uh, whatever else it might be, highways. And, well, how do they fund their schools then? Well, they sell their land. every October and every May, the Idaho State Land Board has an auction. And what are they doing? They're selling lands to get generate money for the school system because the legislature keeps cutting their share of general funding to the school districts. So what if you're, let's say this experiment happens and your state legislature says, you know, <laughs> Lewis and Clark State College, you know, let's cut their budget. Let, let's, let's cut in half what we're giving them. And, you know, the. The University of Idaho, you know, the Vandals, and uh, they just—they just, uh, don't deserve what we're giving them. And, and Idaho State, you know, uh, let's cut that too. And and then let let's let's not contribute so much for the prisons and the juvenile correction system and the and the capital commission. Now well, let's cut that. Well, where is the money going to come from? Well, to make it up, it's going to come from your state. Land trust, your land board that manages this trust. Well, they don't have enough earnings to fund all that difference because your legislature cut so deeply. Mm-hmm. So what are they going to have to do? Well, you know the 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 best four thousand acres we could sell would be that state land that controls, you know, that right there on the St. Joe. There's that. There, that road goes through there someone would pay a fortune to control that access. So it's only 4000 acres, let's sell it and I think we can make 18 million on that. And then there's this piece just outside of Salmon. There is the best elk hunting there. For 3000 acres, you you could control all that access there. So man, for that 3000 acres, I bet you we could get 20 million from the Wilkes brothers. Mm-hmm. So let's sell that 3000 So this is the process by which this end mechanism, this end means happens. That's what's happening in Utah. Utah is one of the lowest states in per capita funding per student. Yep. From their state legislature. Yep. Where do they make it up? They make it up from their state land board who sells land all the time.
0: And I I think it's fair to say too that you know it's not just about the four thousand acres on the Saint Joe or the three thousand on the on the salmon. What 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 that does is landlocks our federal land. And so it's not like you're just losing access to, you know, seven thousand acres or whatever. Right. It's it's
1: millions of acres that that could we could be locked out of as as sportsmen. Right. And so I I and then the, not that we're probably ever going to have the big fire again, the great burn like you had in Northern Idaho and Western Montana back in, when was it? 1919
0: or? or, oh no, maybe it was 1910. There was another one in
1: 1919, something like that. Yeah, somewhere around there. But Assume we have huge fires. Who's going to pay for that? Do, do, do our counties, do our rural counties of Montana and Idaho, Wyoming, or even our states, do we have the money to pay the millions, the tens and hundreds of millions that a bad fire season would create? No. No. We don't. Everybody knows that. All of these studies I talk about that have been commissioned say the states would never be able to afford what it's going to cost for fire, for just roads and all these Forest Service roads, all these other things. I don't know how it is in Idaho, but our counties don't have enough money to maintain the asphalt roads they have right now. Yeah, exactly. Idaho's we gave the same. them all the Forest Service roads and said, you're now in charge of my, of all of these. Their only remaining recourse would be to close the roads because they, they don't have the money to plow them, to maintain them, to put in new culverts, to whatever. Mm-hmm. They, they don't have the money to take care of what they got right now. And so every one of these Schemes, these pretty packaged ideas is based on the understanding that the states could not afford these. Your state land board, just like Montana, just like every other state, is under the directive that if you have assets that are not generating money, you must dispose of them. Mm-hmm. This is in the constitutional it, charter. It, it, exactly. State land boards operate from. You have to sell them. You, you're not allowed to say, "Well, you know, the public hunts on those. Uh, you know, it's going to cost a few million to repair that road. Let's let's do that." That's not what these state land boards are allowed to do. They would look at it and say, "Well, we could save the two million repair, and we could generate three million of revenue by selling that. Sold." And who do you no. think those are? Jim, do you think you and I or your listeners or my listeners are the people who are going to be the buyers of those lands when they in Utah? No. no absolutely in, not. They they on their Facebook page, they used to argue with people that, why are you complaining? These aren't public lands anyhow. These are ours to sell or do what we want. And then they when they got so much criticism, they quit saying that. And then they would say, Well, we only sell the desolate, the the wasteland, the stuff nobody wants. Well, if you go to their flyers where they advertise it, premium big L cunning right here, exclusive access, dot, 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 dot. Mm-hmm. Those are the pieces they're selling. And the buyers are not you or me or our listeners. The buyers are the super wealthy people who are well connected to the politicians. And <laughs> that's, that's where they want to go with this. So. It's it, if you get,
0: <laughs> if you get, uh I know we keep picking on Utah, but I mean, if you get on the, the Mike Lee website,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, he says on uh, under the public lands tab, it says it is often said we now live in two Americas. Nowhere is that description truer than when it comes to land owned by the federal government. And yep. they say these things The federal uh, government owns just 4% of land. Um, They say these things. Russ Fulcher in Idaho, he has since, I can't find it on his website anymore, but he said, basically referring to federal land as uh, it's mismanaged, and that's what happens when you have a landlord 3,000 miles away. That kind of statement is so misguided because – it's not. I, I don't know of any situation where a tenant receives money from the landlord. First of all, and second right. of all, it's not a landlord. They're simply managing the land. Somebody has to manage it. Is yeah. is the, and I, I really like using the Forest Service and, and uh, as an example because um, there's there's a lot of room for improvement in in how that's that's managed. Sure. Oh yeah. But for sure. What what entity from any government, whether it's the federal state, local county, you know whatever, where show me one program that doesn't have room for improvement yeah. it, it, it doesn't exist and so these wild statements that they make and and it's this this uh, congressional candidate that I had said something that really struck me uh, th- because I was telling him that you know it, it eventually it's inevitable if if that happens. We will no longer have access to it. And he said something that I think is truly super naive. And he was a younger guy. So I, I, I get it, but he says, I think that it has to start with trust. People have to trust us.
1: They're going to have to trust us. <laughs> oh, trust me. Yeah. <laughs> trust me. Just, just
0: trust us. <laughs> you know, there has to be a level of trust. And, and I just, uh, I, I, uh, I was maybe too nice to him but I didn't want to tell him that you know uh, uh, there is no trust my friend there is no trust I am I'm long enough in the tooth to know that I I just don't trust you I apologize yeah. and do, it's probably not going to change
1: Do do you think that the folks of Oregon who have sold 55% of their public of their state trust land you suppose they trust anybody There is not enough time in a lifetime to gain that trust back for
0: for those Oregonians. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No way. Uh, No way. But but that is kind of that person, whoever it was you had on there, that's putting up the surrender flag. It's saying, Mm -hmm. okay, you got me. Let me put up the surrender flag and just say, trust me. Yeah. Yeah. It's Uh, unrealistic. Maybe when I was 14, I would trust somebody like that. When Mm -hmm. I was 24 – yeah, I still gave people the benefit of the doubt. But, you know, I was born in the dark, but it wasn't last night. You know, I, I am <laughs> not trusting anybody. So <clears throat> the the real point that I I tell people and I've been asked in so many instances to debate politicians on this topic and not a single one of them will show up when it's time to debate this mm-hmm. because they know they don't have any, any uh, rationale, any, when, once you pull the first rapper back, they know they have a losing case and they don't want to be called out for it. So they, uh, they avoid this discussion with people who've been involved in it for 30 years like I have, because they're going to end up having to run the surrender flag up the pole of, well, just trust me. So I tell yeah. every one of these state politicians that if you want to take over the federal lands and think that our state land boards should manage these lands, should own these lands, one of two conditions exist. Either you intend to have these lands be sold because you know, as well as I do, Mr. or Mrs. Candidate, that the state land boards cannot afford to keep these lands. Or if it's not number one, where your motive is to get them sold, then it's number two, where you are so ignorant, you can't even balance a checkbook. Because if you could, you would understand that the states can't afford to keep these lands. That, that's that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's really where it goes. And, and I am, so for, for what it's worth, I come from a logging family. My, my brother is still a logger. He's got a logging business. Mm-hmm. I get the whole concerns of all this stuff, the frustrations, all that comes with it. But let's, let's again walk through the example. Let's say all of the Forest Service lands in northern Idaho get transferred to your state land board. Do you think that somehow that exempts the management of those lands from the Endangered Species Act? Nope. Mm-mm. Does it? Does it change the management of those lands to or it exempt them from NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act? Mm-hmm. No. Does that mean that we no longer have to manage with concerns for endangered species like grizzly bears, like bull trout, like everything else? So if anyone thinks that all of a sudden, because these lands are managed or owned by a state institutional land board, And done for the private benefit of their or for the benefit of those uh, beneficiaries that somehow now they can go do whatever the hell they want with with ignoring the ESA and NEPA and all the other federal regulations. You're crazy. You're Mm -hmm. living in a dream world. Those, Those those same big overviews apply. So. Show me a place in the northern Rockies that isn't considered lynx, wolverine, grizzly bear, or some other endangered species habitat. There is not a place in the northern Rockies Mm. where a state land board could operate in huge swaths without having to address those concerns. Mm -hmm. So now, who's going to get sued about every timber sale, every management action, every thinning project? It's not going to be the Forest Service who gets sued now by the environmental group. It's going to be your state land board. And anyone who thinks I'm BSing, go look at the Elliott State Forest in Oregon. 90,000 acres held by their state land board. Three years ago, they, they got ready to put it up on the auction block. Why? Because it no longer was a productive forest from an economic standpoint. All the litigation, all the lawsuits stopped all of the timber harvest, and they were losing money on it. Their state land board, like every other Western state land board, has a charter from their constitution, from their state legislature, that you have to make money on these lands or disposable. Mm -hmm. So they put the 90,000-acre Elliott State Forest up on the auction block. And at the last minute, it it created such a shitstorm that eventually the state legislature said, you know, we're going to make an exception here. We're we're, uh, uh, we're, we're going to figure out a way to not have to sell this because people are coming unwound. That's exactly what's mm-hmm. going to happen in northern Idaho or western Montana or south, where I live in Bozeman. There is not, I can't go anywhere that's not partial grizzly bear habitat, lynx habitat, wolverine habitat. And every forest timber sale on the national forest has to manage for the impacts of those species. Just because the land is owned by some other entity does not mean you're exempt from those federal regulations. So are these people going to joke me and try to tell me, oh, well, we're going to get rid of the Endangered Species Act? Good luck with that. We're going to get rid of NEPA? (laughs) Good luck with that. So when you start drilling down into this, this is the biggest steaming pile of horse crap you've ever heard or seen. But it sounds Have really you good on the surface. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. That, and, and it's, that gets back to the, the packaging of it. They, they package it yep. in a way, like you were saying, with a bow and, and make it sound really great. It's, we're going to save so much money. It's going to be so much more efficient and, and, and this and that. But, the, but we know that's not true. What, what do you say to like the, the one idea I've heard thrown out there with, with this whole state transfer thing? And I don't remember who was saying this, but, uh because there is the mandate that you were talking about that they have to they have to be making money or they have to dispose of them right and, and th- that's that's the uh the, the conceptual design from the legislature that cannot there's no work around with that and so yep. one of the one of the ideas was okay well what we're going to do is we're going to charge a fee for for people hmm. uh to to access the state lands which yep. um you know, in theory, sounds like maybe that 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 could work, but when you compare you're gonna okay you're gonna charge um fifteen hundred hunters in the fall, you know ten bucks or or whatever yeah. the 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 fee is to access it. that's nothing in comparison to what they can make by selling it to the Wilkes brothers right. and and that temptation <laughs> is always gonna be there
1: always <laughs> there's always the guy with the big checkbook mm-hmm. who. Is the pressure relief valve of and, and what they would do. So if I had the big checkbook, I'm the Goldman Sachs, you know, investment banker partner who's got, you know, I'm worth four billion dollars. I'm actually going to come to Idaho. And if your state land board will not sell money losing assets, I'm probably going to sue you for holding on to assets. Mm hmm. That that's a good, that's on. a great point. That's a great point. And, and they, why am I going to litigate this? Because I know your state charter, just like, and, and I'm, we're using Idaho, but this applies to every Western state. Your state charter says that's against your rules. You need to sell that asset. I'm going to, I'm going to court. I'm going to demand that you sell that acreage out there to where you're losing your ass. Mm-hmm. And guess what? When it comes up for sale, I got the money to buy it. And if people think this isn't happening in other states, they're crazy. It's happening all the time. People with yeah. big checkbooks are buying state lands for recreation purposes. And the reason we use Utah as the example is because they have these scheduled sales every six months. That So, so that makes them really easy. Let's take Alaska. Alaska's institutions are their state land, of of their state land board, their beneficiaries are the state school system, the university system, and the state mental health system. In Alaska, you can go and petition to have state land sold. You can, you can be the one who nominates getting it sold. So let's imagine you like hunting in the Brooks range for caribou. Or your favorite moose hunting place is somewhere in the Alaska range or, uh, you know, somewhere uh, uh, in their, one of the remote areas by Tok. Well, right now, those are all federal lands. But let's say there's an airstrip on that BLM or on that federal land that is critical to getting access in there. Let's give, let's in our example again, let's give all those to the state of Alaska. Well, who do you think is going to go to the state of Alaska and say, hey, I want to nominate that airstrip parcel for sale because that's where I fly all my hunters in and out of? Or I'm really a wealthy SOB and I like having all this moose hunting access to myself. Mm -hmm. Do you think the citizens of Alaska are going to be able to outbid that guy, an individual? No. Who's going to control the airstrips, all the points of access? the people with the checkbooks. And it's just the reality of a capitalist society is the person with the resources is going to end up with what they want. And that's yeah, part of yeah. what makes America great. But yet if if you're in favor, if your frustration of how lands are managed is pent up enough for you to just say, screw it, give it to the state land boards you need to think about these are the consequences you're going to be dealing with 23 There's, million acres so colorado hosts more non resident elk hunters than any western state mm-hmm. 23 million acres of forest service and blm land under this idea that your state legislature or your senate candidate with federal i don't know what it was but anyhow this person who's on your podcast their idea of give this to the state That's 23 million acres that nobody now gets to hunt in Colorado. Because in Colorado, you cannot hunt state trust lands. You can't camp on it. You can't hike it. You can't anything without the permission of the lessee. You have to get written permission from whoever is leasing those state lands. Mm -hmm. Well, do you think those lessees are going to give all these hunters written permission for free? No, No. it's going to it's going to turn into a rich man's game at that point. Right. So. So. And people say, well, that's Colorado. Well, first of all, yeah, it's Colorado, but it's our land. We can go there and hunt right now, but that's twenty three hundred twenty three million acres. We wouldn't be able to hunt. Mm -hmm. My state of Montana was identical to Colorado until 19. I'm trying to remember what legislative session it was. 92 or 94. It was one of the my first efforts here of when I moved to Montana, going to the legislature and giving my two cents worth. Mm-hmm. We went there and it was a knockdown, drag out of we want to have hunting and fishing access to our state trust lands. Well, obviously the people who were leasing those lands they didn't want that. So here's the mechanism that we had to use in Montana is we said, we will develop a permit system, a a pay, a, you know, you got to buy your recreation permit and that will create more money to the state in uh, educational institutions. Even by proving that that would put money in the state school coffers, there were people who did not want the public to have access to those state lands. And by a narrow margin, the state legislature changed the rules where here in Montana, we're now more like Idaho where we, we got, we got to buy a state permit to be out there recreating or hunting or fishing or whatever on our state lands. But
0: that includes like
1: bird watching or anything, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anything horseback riding, you name it. But if all it's going to take is one adverse legislature And one adverse governor who does not like public access or who is being bought and paid for by the wealthy people who want the public off these lands. Oh, does that happen? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, does that happen, right? (laughs) A politician gets seduced by money. (laughs) Yeah. So imagine if that happens. In Montana, they just go to that code section in the Montana code annotated and say, we're going to slightly alter this and we're going to line out those three or four sentences, those one or two paragraphs that gave the public access to these state lands back in, I can't remember, in 92 or 94. Now, in the course of one legislative session, one bad governor, we go from being like Idaho to back being like Colorado where we no longer get to hunt and fish on our state land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I people think that I'm making this up. Some people do because they, they they are just so frustrated. I'm not making this up. Everything I'm providing to you is an absolute example of history or an absolute example of what the current situation is. I there, also the, think
0: that there's, there's also like a, a huge portion of – of hunters that are, that, that it's not that they're ignorant to the situation, so to speak. It's more that it, it's not a priority or it's not, it's not a, it's not a, a thought. You, you know what I mean? They just right. kind of make the, the assumption that, that, oh yeah, the, the forest service uh, roads, those are always going to be there and open. They're, those are always going to be accessible. I'll always be able to have that. <laughs> and, nope. and, and, yeah. And, and I was like that too, when I was in my twenties, I didn't know that there there was this fight, there was this, uh, this struggle, uh, for, for, I, I guess, control is it might be a terrible word to use, but, um, you know, I didn't know that. And, and it actually the, when the, when the Marines said, Hey, Jim, you're going to North Carolina for, for the next four and a half years. Uh, when they sent me out to North Carolina, uh, that's what woke me up to, uh, I, I hate using that term now because now it's this thing. Oh, you're woke. Yeah, you know, this, this political trick, buzzword But, but it, I, I, I'll, I'll do this one. I was awakened to mm-hmm. the, uh, the repercussions of state ownership of land. Private ownership of land and lack of access, and 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 federally managed public land. It really was an awakening. People mm-hmm. that that I grew up with, I, I or I'm sorry, that that I, that I was serving with over there, and they they were from states like South Carolina or Kentucky, or uh you know Florida, all all these 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 different states. They they didn't believe me when I tell them that I could get on a dirt road in my home state. And drive for four days and not see another individual and be on public land the entire time and do whatever yep. I wanted. They they didn't believe mm-hmm. it. Uh, and 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 it, so it was it was just this uh, you know the, this time in my life. I'm, I'm getting way off 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 the topic here. What what I really want to do is make sure that hunters that are passionate about hunting and using public lands and and hunting on public lands that they are aware and cognitive of of this this effort to destroy what is essentially our way of life. Yeah. And how do we do that? I I mean, we have, we have conversations like this. Go ahead.
1: I often, uh, if there's one thing that this group who wants to sell the public land is good at it's marketing. So Mm -hmm. I've realized, you know what? I got to come up with a, a 10 second elevator comparison or analogy. And this will take a little more than 10 seconds, but let's, Let's say that you owned a big commercial rental, rental building in Spokane, Washington, or Coeur d'Alene, or Missoula, Montana, or whatever, and your property manager just sucked. I mean, he was not—he or she was not generating the money, not doing a good job of of keeping the building up in good repair and everything else. Would you fire that? That property manager, or would you give away your rental building? I'd fire the property manager. Get a new one. Yeah, that's it. It, it yeah. People look at me like, well, yeah, I'd fire the property manager. Well, guess who the property manager of the federal lands are? It's Congress. Why in the hell would we ever think about giving away our asset that Congress is supposed to manage for us just because Congress won't do their job? Yeah. It's the same exact analogy, same parallel. That's a, that's a great analogy, and, and we have to be
0: aware of that because we're talking about the same Congress that approves millions of dollars to study what makes bullfrogs horny in the <laughs> desert, and, yeah. and that, that's the kind of stuff that just chaps my ass, Randy. And, and yeah. uh, Anyway, th- go, going back to your point, but that analogy is perfect. It,
1: it's, it's a great analogy yeah. when we're talking along these lines. Um, to, to To say that we should give these lands to somebody else because Congress doesn't want to do their job is a complete bailout by Congress. And the reason that a lot of senators and Congress people will not engage with me or get tired of my being a pain in their ass is because when you say it that way, that this is your job and you don't want to do the hard work. In fact, you want to go the other direction to frustrate people even further so that they will buy into your false promise of giving these lands to state boards. They don't like hearing that. But that's the absolute honest to God truth. And I, li- I like Why how they pack. You? Go ahead. What's that?
0: Oh, I, I, I was just no, going to say part part of the whole packaging thing that they they talk about. They act like they're doing this honorable deed. We're going to give these yeah. lands back to the state where they were originally supposed to be, or <laughs> as if as if the federal government came in with the SS police or something and stole these lands from the people of the state. Right? We're going to yeah. give them back to you. Uh, yeah. That's that, that, that great point. It, if there if there ever was the to, a place to use the analogy wolf in sheep's clothing that's it
1: yeah. because that's that's yeah. a lie uh, you, you, i'm glad you brought that up because that's how they always say it right give it back to the state mm-hmm. these lands were never state lands never that what we're talking about were never state lands they've always been exactly. federal lands. What we do have as state lands, the federal government gave them to us when our states became state. So it's not giving them back to the state. Exactly. That's like saying I saying, hey Jim, you know your house there, I'm gonna give it back to your neighbor. And you'd say, Well, it was never my neighbor's to start with. Well, I don't care. You know, don't sweat the details. I I like saying I'm gonna give it back to the neighbor. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) It's it is (laughs) exactly BF. So it, it is just, uh, and, and that's and that's what they talk. That's how that's how they package it. We're we're gonna give it back to you, and it's just
1: ah, that drives me crazy. Yeah, it drives it, me crazy. It's not the case. I I think the the solution. So we're forty or fifty years into letting our federal lands become in a state of disrepair, and that is by design in Congress. It is not because your local forest ranger said, you know, we're going to quit maintaining the road or we're going to this or we're going to do that. It's because Congress told the Forest Service chief, here's what your budget is. It's less than last year and it's less Mm -hmm. than last year and it's less than last year. And, oh, we're going to pass all these other laws that make. Timber harvest, or fire super, fire management, and all these we're gonna, all these other laws we're we're gonna make those more difficult for you. And oh, we're gonna let the Canadians flood your softwood timber markets, <clears throat> and we're gonna blame it on somebody else because we don't want to do the hard work. We don't want to push back on the Canadians. We don't want to have to fund some of these projects that we've thrown on the Forest Service or the BLM or whoever it is. Congress is where all of this comes back to. And who are the people who are saying, oh, that's not my job, or, you know, it's it's the damn Fed. I I love it when Rob Bishop from Utah likes to complain and bitch about the Feds. He is the (laughs) Fed. I know. (laughs) He chaired the
0: House Natural Resource Committee. That's like and my wife complaining that I don't take out the trash and me telling her that damn that or your husband he is an idiot and he's lazy. You know it's the same concept.
1: Yeah. So he's the one and he <clears throat> when he ran the House Natural Resources Committee, he was the majority. He represented the majority party. He got to set the policy. He had the president. He had uh, he had everything they wanted. And Mm -hmm. what did he do? He cut the funding to the counties, to the school boards. Did he do anything to improve the management of our public lands? Did he give us more firefighting resources? Did he go out there and say, you know what? We've got way, way more mature timber out here than is healthy, than is good for the forest, than is good for wildlife or good for communities and fire concerns. Mm -hmm. Did he say, let's maybe we should take our loggers. And we should hire them to go and manage our lands for us instead of charging them stumpage. He's yeah. had all of those ideas thrown at him many times. And what did he do? Cut funding. He just dug in his heels and said, No <laughs> And this is yeah. where it's gonna piss some people off. He he's thinking, you know what, the people who control the re election funds wouldn't like it if I did that. Yeah. Exactly. And I need re election money to get re elected. So, oh, that and ain't, I ain't doing that. That's too much work.
0: And, and then in the <laughs> same breath, turns around <laughs>
1: and says, Oh, the states will
0: manage these lands better than I can. Hey, essentially, that's yeah. what he's saying. It's just, it's right. ludicrous. Only in politics right, so, but, can a person so behave this way.
1: And they, they say the states can manage better. Okay. Let's think about this then. They're using it as a measurement of how much money the state brings in per acre. Mm -hmm. Well, because the states are charged with the mandate of having to maximize revenue here in Montana, the average grazing lease is right around $20 per AUM per animal unit, cow, calf pair right next door on the forest service or BLM. It's less than a dollar and 50 cents. So, if you're a public land grazer, do you want all of these lands to go to the states where you're now going to pay $20 per AUM to graze your cattle? How, the, uh, how, many, of those, how many of those public land ranchers are going to stay in business with low cattle? They, they prices? won't. They won't. Unless the, unless the
0: American public is willing to pay $30 a pound for
1: ground beef, it's yeah. just not. It's not feasible. So then you look at the royalty rates that for minerals, which could be uh, hard minerals or it could be oil and gas. The states, it depends on which state you look at. It's 20 to 25 percent is the royalty rate that's paid on state resources. The federal is somewhere between 15 percent and lower. And what is Congress trying to do right now? They call it a royalty holiday, right? Let's mm-hmm. drop the royalty rate to zero. Well, here's the other thing. The federal royalties get split with the counties in the state. So when the federal government says we're going to give the, the all these producers a royalty holiday. They're writing some of those checks with your state and county and, and school districts who are no longer getting their royalties. So. That, that's why they say the, the, the states do a, quote, unquote, better job. Well, the reason they do a better job is because Congress is sleeping at the switch. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that prevents Congress from raising the royalty rate to the same rate the states charge. The, mm. the only thing that's prohibiting that is you have a bunch of senators who they know who holds the, the lockbox to the re-election funds the big, the millions and millions of dollars they need for their reelection campaigns. And a lot of that runs through the Utah, Texas, Oklahoma delegations. And if you piss them off, they're not going to give you your reelection money. So you better just stand in line, pal. And don't you ever be talking about any type of royalty rate on federal lands that is equivalent to what the states charge. We'll get your ass out of here. We'll find another one that looks just like you. That's interesting. I didn't know. I didn't know a lot of that. That's yeah. (laughs) Yeah. When, when you peel back all the layers, it is the biggest BS smoke screen. And whenever I do it, I think back to 20 years ago when I thought it was a good idea when I first heard it. And Mm -hmm. I'll admit, I was like, yeah. And then every year I'd be looking a little deeper and exploring a little more. And now I'm as, I am em, as embarrassed as hell to no, think I, that at the time I my my instincts of smaller government of local control were so strong that I didn't look into the deeper side of it.
0: Well, I, I think so. you know we we have the same kind of history with that because on the surface like what you were talking about peeling back the layers on the surface as a conservative guy that I am, I, I am a pretty conservative guy when, yeah. when you, it, it, it makes sense to say that local management or state management is going to be better than this big federal bureaucracy. Right. And that, that's the way these Mike Lees and, and Rob Bishops yep. and, 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 and these people like to put it. And uh, Ted Cruz, that's another one. I was, I was trying to yep. pop into my mind. Uh, When, when they say it, To a, a conservative base of people. Initially, on the surface, it does make sense. It's, it's, it's a valid argument. It's, but, but it's like what you said. When you start peeling the layers back and you start exposing the realities of, of transferring federal lands to state ownership out of the hands of the citizens, that's where it starts getting muddy and, and where it becomes unacceptable for people that like, like you and I, who are you know my i only hunt public lands i only fish public lands i don't have well that's not true i i live on five acres and uh i've i've taken a deer off of my property before okay (laughs) Okay, (laughs) but but for the most part where i hunt it, it, it's public land, and, and that's my life. That's my lifestyle. Uh, you know, I'm a hunter. That's that's what defines me, and that's that's what, what makes me who I am. And and so it, it's it's this this huge onion that we're peeling back the layer on, and the more layers that the stinkier that onion gets, and the more my eyes water because it's uh, it's just it's a complicated thing. And so can I yeah. can I ask you about? I know we're we're probably running a little long here.
1: Um, no, I'm fine. With, however long your listeners want to. Put up with my ranting and chattering.
0: All right, uh, I want to I want to talk just briefly about sportsmen's organizations, and mm-hmm. I, I and and the reason is I think there's a lot of people that see a lot of value in them, and there's a, a lot of other people that maybe don't understand the extent of the value in them. So, so groups mm-hmm. such as the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Uh, and we, we have stuff here in Idaho, like the Idaho Wildlife Federation. We have, uh, backcountry hunters and anglers. Can you talk about, um, why, why it's important for, for hunters and anglers to be involved with these kind of organizations?
1: Yeah. I mean, I always tell people if I were to pick an organization that agreed, that I agreed with 100% of the time, it'd be an organization with one member, me. <laughs> so first thing you got to get out of your head is that 100% of the time you and them are going to be on the same page. It just, it's not going to happen. So then once you, once you kind of clear that hurdle, it's like, all right, which one does a lot of good and I'll use the elk foundation. I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> uh, probably a biased promoter of it because I spent six years on the board of directors, but the Elk Foundation has, in its course of time since 1984 being in, in existence, has taken over a million acres of land that was inaccessible or was private land and has converted it to public land. And when they do that, the, the Elk Foundation doesn't own land that just a bunch of people get, you know, buddies and pals get to hunt in fact when i was on the board you got to sign this thing that you know i'm i hereby am not going to use my position for blah 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 you know all these conflict of interest things Mm -hmm. and to part of of the process elk foundation prevents that is as quick as they acquire land they already have a mechanism or a transaction ready to turn it over to idaho game and fish or the blm or the forest service or whoever Mm -hmm. so i use them as an example They have increased, enhanced, or improved, or created a million acres of new public access in elk country. In addition to another almost 8 million acres of habitat that they've improved through burning, weed control, forest thinning, whatever else it might be. And so I use that as what they've accomplished on the ground. Ducks Unlimited, 15 million one five with six zeros after it. 15 million acres of wetlands has been conserved. That's huge. That's more that's, than the state of Vermont and New Hampshire combined. Yeah, that's a huge whatever of land. I, whatever, yeah, whatever organization it is that are these hunter-based conservation groups, I could go on and, and rattle off all the statistics. But here's another role that they play, and it's becoming more and more important as our political process tries to take what historically have been state and local fish and wildlife issues and drag them into state legislatures or drag them into Congress. We can't, I'm the exception where I will fly to DC. I will go there and do what I can and call some of the contacts I have to get me a lobbying uh, opportunity. And I'll go there and, you know, speak and scream and do whatever. But that's Mm -hmm. not most people. Most of us want to be able to go down to the local community center to a public hearing and give our commentary. Well, as these issues get drawn into the political arena, we need someone there to speak for our voice. And I suspect you, me, all your listeners, if they think about 20 years ago, how how the dynamic of the politicization of our issues has increased in the last 20 years, 20 years from now, it's going to be even more. So we need these groups. We need their voice. We need their lobbying. We need their presence. We need their clout and their reputation they have with our congressional delegations and our state legislatures to go there and speak on our behalf.
0: And it's one of the reasons I think that that's so effective and why I agree with you so much is um, uh, one of the things I get asked a lot, you know, uh, when we're talking about like anti-hunting organizations and the the way that they they paint hunters uh, or hunting in general as if it's like this really easy thing. We go out Mm -hmm. and we open a can of Miller Lite and crack off a shot and there's a dead deer right there and it's in the truck and, and off we go, right? Like it's this big easy thing. What I, what I try to right. explain to people is the, the wildlife that we're, that we're in pursuit, pursuit of and that we hunt. It's what they do for a living, right? So it's not, yeah. it's not that easy. The, these elk, these deer, they, they live here. They live in those woods. They live in those mountains. They do this every day. The same can be said for. Like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, for example. So they do this for a living. They know what is out there. They know what's on the table. They know what the threats are. They know what the the, the blocked access points are. They know what the elk need and and the habitat where it needs to be improved. All these things because that's on a day to day basis what they do. And so w- when you compare it to somebody for, for like me, for example, I've got a day job. I, I do a podcast, I, I write, I, I have my kids and my wife and, and all these other aspects of my life that are taking all this time up. I'm not always aware of every little thing that can make a big impact to my hunting access or my, my uh, ability to access public lands or, or, or the habitat that needs to be improved so that the elk thrive. And that's what, yep. the, what one of the, the powerful things with something like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation can do. They they're they're keyed into that. So when they go to Washington, yep. D.C., they've got their ducks in a row. If, if you sent me to Washington, D.C., it, mm-hmm. it, it'd probably do more damage
1: uh, <laughs> th- than it would. Good.
0: <laughs> and so but so that's.
1: I, yeah, you're exactly right. I'm glad you pointed that out, Jim, because how many of us have went to a public hearing, a comment hearing or whatever it is, say, on uh a wildlife management issue, (coughs) wolves or grizzly bears. And we show up and we look around and all of the people who we know, they're all volunteers. They are there on their own time after they got off work at the mill or, you know, the, whatever, a self-employed person took two hours away from their work and, and they are there of their own time, own cost. And then usually the opposition, the people who want to get up and, and scream and yell and make a big scene. They're on somebody's payroll. They get paid to show up at these events. They get paid to comment. They get paid to litigate. If there's one place where we are way behind the curve, where we we got to up our game, it's where we as hunters and anglers and people who believe in this outdoor lifestyle, we have to start being willing to fund positions for people to show up on the payroll and represent us, in addition to us showing up. Because the other side, that's all they spend their money on. The Center for Biological Diversity, go look at how many attorneys they have on staff. That's all they do. They litigate. They show up at these things. They threaten to litigate. If you don't do it, they say or what they ask, then they sue you in federal court. Do we have any groups like that defending us to counterbalance that? No. What happens if some nonprofit group, your state group, or federal national-based group hires a "quote-unquote" overhead person for lobbying and policy? What do we do as hunters? We look at their budget and say, "What the hell are you spending? I'm wasting my money on." Geez, you know, we got to get over that mindset. We got to up our game because right now we're getting our clock cleaned. In the political, in the in the judicial uh, arena, because and these other groups know it. They look at us and say, "Look, those guys are all volunteers. They've been doing this as a volunteer thing for a hundred years." You know, Ducks Unlimited started in 1937. For the last 80 some years, they've relied on volunteers. Wow, we're gonna we're gonna hire a bunch of sharp attorneys and political experts, and we're gonna go there and just mop the floor with them. And that's what's been happening. So I, I know that's a bit of a diversion from what we talked about here uh, earlier, but these conservation groups that we support, I think we got to start pressuring them to start having a bigger presence in our state legislatures, in our Congress, in the Senate, in the House. Because if we don't, we're going to be standing there wondering why we didn't win the football game. Well if you're going to win score the winning touchdown you got to be on the field you got to be in the game you can't be up in the bleachers and we like to sit up in the bleachers and complain that we're getting our clock clean <laughs> the other group they've got the professionals out there you know they've got the the all-American team out there and we send a bunch of volunteer high school kids out there to play against them kind of and then we wonder why the outcome is how it is you there Or did you hit the mute button again i must have hit the mute button again can you hear me? <laughs> I can hear you now.
0: It's it's in a weird spot on my screen, so I'm uh, <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, no. I, I what what you were talking now, Randy. I didn't warn you before coming on my show. I when it comes to the the, the technology side of this, I'm terrible.
1: I uh, oh, that's all right. I have I have that's why I, I have hire- issues. <laughs> <laughs> I hire people to do that for me. I, I, I don't make any money but I employ a few people
0: <laughs> yeah, well I I wish I was at that point but I I had a teenager that I I, I was uh, it was like you know a sweatshop I'd make her sit out here and help me with this stuff but she's moved out so now I'm now I'm on my own and I mute myself without knowing yeah. it all the time so <laughs> but uh, but to your point I r- real quick what what you're saying I think that uh, the, the the old mindset of by by me buying a deer tag that makes me a conservationist or or i'm doing my part and and funding conservation efforts and stuff like that and and i i'm not saying that that is not true because there is a level of that, that that obviously uh when you're buying your hunting hunting tags and uh your license you know that there's there's a lot to be said for that but i think that we're at a point where we we do need to ask more out of our 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 community as hunters uh, i'm i'm 35 dollars to be an rmef member is stupid cheap uh you, you know all yeah. these other all, these these other organizations that go to bat for us I'm willing to put more instead of instead of dropping um fifteen hundred dollars every year on a new bow uh get some more life out of that bow and and put 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 that money where it'll actually help us and and actually protect our way of life and and I'm, I'm big on that and I, I'd be willing to pay more for like a membership. I, I love the RMEF man. I won, uh, I won a 300 Win mag last year and I just barely oh. put in. Yeah. I just put a new scope and I never win stuff. So I, uh, I and I just put a new scope <laughs> on it. Got me a, a new loop threw it on there. Ooh. And I'm pretty excited because I, I hunt, I, I rifle hunt for deer, but I've, I've always been uh, using this, this uh, model 94, 30, open sights, you know, and, and I love that little rifle. Just love it, uh-huh. and uh, but boy, do I miss uh, do I miss big with that
1: thing sometimes. So pretty excited <laughs> to get out with this three hundred. <laughs> well, I I think your point's well taken, and as someone who has uh, went from the local to national to in between, a lot of people. They just you know we as hunters and trappers my my real background comes from trapping so i understand how mm-hmm. trappers are probably even more of owners than hunters are we're we're not going to share our trapping spots because yeah. that next time we come by some dude's going to have his traps there well we as hunters are a little bit the same and so we aren't really into this big group kind of stuff and we're we're kind of you know lone wolves in in some respects i get all that But we also have to start thinking about where the future is if we don't change some of those dynamics. And if someone doesn't want to go and speak in front of a big audience at a public event, you know, of uh, uh, a hearing where they're seeking public comment, Write a letter, write an email. Maybe, maybe it's, you don't want to be part of a big national group. Start your own little rod and gun club. I, I did that here in, in Montana. Uh, me and two other guys in Bozeman, we started this group called the Headwaters Fish and Game Association because we got frustrated that no one was really listening to our issues on a state and local level. It's a great well, idea. Pretty man. soon. All of a sudden within three years, we're one of the most powerful groups in the state. We got 300 members and we went and found business owners and community leaders and if we had an issue it's like hey you know that county commissioner can you call him and set him straight about why we need a fishing access site here we got 30 miles of river without a fishing access site we we need a fishing access site here and that guy for whatever reason is against the state doing that so one of our members pick up the phone pretty soon hmm. guess what that county commissioner's on our side now uh so Great don't point. underestimate how powerful a small handful of well informed, reasonable and passionate people can carry the ball. It don't, don't underestimate that. It, I think some of the greatest conservation efforts we've had in this country have been as the result of small, handful group of people, 10 people, 20 people, five people who just said, this is our issue. You know, we love mm. this. We, we, we're not going to let this rest. And uh so maybe that's the mechanism by which someone channels their energy. Maybe they don't want to be on a fundraising committee for, you know, pheasants or ducks or turkeys or elk or whatever. Maybe that's not their gig. Hmm. Maybe, you know, the pint night, the BHA has, maybe that's not their gig. Whatever it is, find what your gig is and you either have some time, some talent or some treasure. The three T's, I call it. None of us have all three. Now, I don't know anyone who has time, talent and treasure to give to nonprofits, but most of us have one of those three. Maybe we have a skill or some relationships that sometimes is more important than the money or maybe hey I'm a really successful business person I have all these businesses I don't have any time but here I'll give you some money yeah. whatever it mm-hmm. is that is going to get help people in this process of speaking up on behalf of hunting fishing conservation public land and public access fantastic
0: guys listening in this in the audience out there just uh, what what I would ask, is do something more this year than you did last year. If you just bought tags yeah. last year, buy tags and become a member of something like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or the Mule Deer Association or BHA or, or Idaho Wildlife Federation for you Idahoans, uh, Foundation for Wildlife Management. All these groups. If if you've done that, do something more this year than you did last year. We we just it did, it is time. It's high time that we do start. Uh, not only doing more as individuals, but, but also coming together more as, as a community of hunters and quit arguing over what broadhead you use on Facebook. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> like what, what is that going to yeah. achieve? I'm so sick of that argument and, and these other arguments yeah. that people have over these, these little things on like social media is the bane of my existence. And and I wouldn't yeah. even have it if it, if it, if I didn't have this platform, you know, and, and so um
1: i'm there with i I would blow up my facebook tomorrow if it wasn't a requirement (laughs) of my contract
0: if it was this physical thing (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah if i if i could stick a a bunch of tannerite in in an in an actual (laughs) object that is facebook i would blow it up and it's not just within the hunting community i i'm sick of seeing Oh, I love Trump or I hate Trump or you're stupid because you hate Trump or you love Trump and and blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm sick of seeing Trump on my Facebook and, and, yeah, and, and in
1: politics and ugh, makes me sick. Has anyone ever changed the mind of somebody by arguing with them on social media?
0: I, I think I, the only minds they're changing
1: no
0: mind. is I, I think the only thing they're changing is is how people feel about each other. Like they, they, 10 years ago, they were great buds, but now their politics differ Mm -hmm. and, and they've changed their minds and they're no longer buds because, because they, one of them likes Trump and one of them hates it. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's terrible. It's, it's something I, I, I just had on a recent episode, I was talking about this, that, you know, there's people that have destroyed lifelong relationships over over the recent and and uh, you know the last few years of of the political climate that has just devastated relationships on a personal level and and it's yeah. it's bullshit it, i'm just sick of, and it all it all kind
1: of comes out of facebook <laughs> you know you know yeah. so right. anyway it does and that's why i tell people don't think that complaining on facebook is advocacy yeah, that is not advocacy advocacy is using your energy your passion and passion can become emotion quickly stick over there on the side of passion not emotion it's using that in effective manners to create a desired outcome yeah the right banging point. the keyboard and screaming and yelling on facebook meets none of those criteria and accomplishes nothing so <laughs> i love it i love it randy
0: well shoot you've uh, you've got a big hunt in nevada coming up you got to gear up for i better let i better let you go
1: Yeah, I, uh, I got to take care of a lot of details here before I head out in a few days. Uh, but what What, a great country, huh? I, oh man, where where else, where else in the world can average guys like you and I? I mean, I grew up in a trailer house. My parents got divorced. My dad's a logger. My mom's a waitress going to college. I work in the sawmill. I could have never dreamed I would have. The benefit and the opportunities of going and hunting millions of acres of public land for nothing more than the tag and the gas to get there. If, I've, if you, I've think heard about you say that. It, yeah. And that does, if that doesn't make you realize you live in the best country in the world, warts and bumps and all, then I guess you got a different perspective on what's a great country than I do. Yeah. So,
0: Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more, Randy. I I get goosebumps just thinking about that kind of stuff. And, and it is what a country we live in. And, and, uh, you know, everybody there, there's, there's always going to be somebody that's going to create a, a a headache here and there, you know, and, and we, there's problems everywhere, but, um, it is a great country and I am, man, am I looking forward to this hunting season. And I, I, do. I don't, I don't even have a pile of great tags this year, but I, I have enough that it's going to keep me busy, and uh, I, I just, I, I'm just looking forward to it. I think more so than most seasons, and, and um, that could be a lot of, I, we've all been so locked down with this pandemic, but uh, sure, I'm looking forward to it. So,
1: well, Jim, I, I really appreciate you having me. Uh, sorry, I know you've reached out to me many times, and it's just between calendars and and me dropping the ball a time or two it's taken us a while to to get together on this but uh really appreciate it thanks for all you do
0: no i i appreciate it uh, more so i, I uh, you taking the time and and uh, talking to a slug like me i i it is it means a lot and i i appreciate you coming on and i think uh, both myself and the audience is going to get a lot out of this uh so so thank you from the bottom of my heart and uh you have a safe and productive hunting season my friend I will
1: try you do the same, and maybe we'll uh, we'll check in with each other after hunting season and tell we should. Stories. We should. we should. I can I could tell a whopper of a story if you're
0: if you're up for it. so uh, let's plan on it. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Randy. You made it all the way to the end.